What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. To mark Earth Day, we're listening back to a compelling conversation from 2021 between Ryder and Karpf and BBC South Asia correspondent Regini Vadyanathan on how the climate crisis and gender inequality must be tackled hand in hand. Here's Regini Vadyanathan with more. As the COP26 Global Climate Summit takes place in Glasgow, Scotland, the world is focusing once again on how we tackle the climate emergency. Anne Karpf is a writer and sociologist whose recent book, How Women Can Save the Planet, breaks down the we into more specific terms. Are big corporate polluters really the same we as those in developing nations who are impacted by climate change firsthand? Women in Kenya and Ethiopia and Mozambique, for example, who walk long distances just to get water or thousands of families here in South Asia who are displaced every year due to extreme weather. I'm speaking to you from Delhi, and across India, extreme weather is a regular occurrence. I've just returned from reporting in South India in Kerala, which experienced heavy rainfall, floods and landslides, claiming dozens of lives. And global temperatures are also rising. It's forecast this will also have an impact on growth in many countries. The world's richest nations are responsible for a staggering 86% of global carbon emissions. But should poorer nations now be paying the price for that? Could a Green New Deal for women be a more prosperous way to reboot the economy for everyone? Well, Anne's book seeks to answer some of those questions. So a very warm welcome to you, Anne, to Intelligence Squared. Thank you very much, Regini. Let's start with the title of your book, how women can save the planet. So how can they? Well, I should actually start by qualifying that title because it sounds a little like, oh yes, do the cooking, the cleaning, the washing, looking after the children. And in our spare time, let's just save the planet. <laughs> um, and that wasn't what I meant at all. And nor putting the responsibility squarely on, on women as, you know, women as saviors in the climate debate. That is a stance I very much reject. 
Um, but I think one of the most interesting and really kind of quite neglected aspects of the climate crisis, neglected not in the research, and there's voluminous research about this, but in the kind of public debate and the international conversation, is the role of gender and gender inequality. And sometimes it's quite difficult to raise this as an issue because people say, um, first of all, we're all in it together. Um, which they said, of course, about COVID as well. And also they say, you can't be talking about gender at a moment of such peril in the world. You know, this is a distraction. This is um, special pleading. Uh, we can deal with things like that later. And they're completely wrong because it turns out that women are particularly impacted by the climate crisis, particularly women in the global south and in particular women of colour. And not only are they particularly impacted, but all the evidence shows that women have done least, particularly women of colour in the global south, to cause the climate crisis. And then to add you know, the third layer of insult to all of this, women have been marginalized in all the debates and negotiations around it, even though, of course, they're in full force on the streets as young climate activists and in social media. So you've got these three prongs happening here. The impact in particular on women, the distinctive impact on women, as well as the impact on everybody, the fact that women have caused it less than anyone else, and the fact that then they're excluded from the solutions. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I wanted to look at. Yeah, and you talk about the impact in your book. Um, I'm speaking to you from a developing country and through my reporting, I've certainly seen women on the front line of some of those climate challenges, particularly in the most vulnerable communities here in South Asia. Tell us more about what you conclude and found out in terms of your research for your book when it comes to the most vulnerable communities? Well, it is really quite shocking when you look at the statistics. Um, women, for example, are 14 times more likely to die from climate-induced disasters than men. 14 times. 14 times. And how do they, how, how does someone conclude that? Well, um, through the, the statistics are quite clear. For example, in the 1991 Bangladesh tsunami, 140,000 people died. 90% of them were women. 90%. Wow. Now, why does this happen? We're not talking chromosomes biology here. We're talking about gender, which is something very different. It's the social roles and identities that we are raised in. So, of course, we're not talking about all men and all women. We're talking about a particular version of masculinity and a particular version of femininity. But if you look at the evidence from South Asia, from Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, and other countries, we see that, first of all, women are mainly responsible for child care and for care of the elderly. So this constrains them when there are floods, um, when there are tsunamis, the freedom of movement, because they're having to scoop up um, babies and children who can't walk, stay behind to help elderly people. They're also responsible for um, food and kitchen. So they're often trying to save cooking pots and food at the same time. So their mobility is constrained, not, as I say, for any physiological reasons, but because of their social roles. 
Um, then they are wearing long, loose clothing in the form of saris that constrains their ability to run, for example, or to swim. In many countries of the world, there are cultural taboos against women learning to swim. Um, there are cultural taboos against them traveling in, in public places on their own. So they may not have seen warnings about climate-induced disasters that are coming. Um, they are less likely to own a radio set, which is another form that people are given warning. So all these factors conspire to limit women's ability to escape from climate-induced disasters. And Anne, it's not just about escaping. I mean, you write in your book about something that I've seen um, on so many occasions reporting across South Asia, which is also women cooking the food on these open cook stoves yes. that are incredibly polluting. I remember seeing a woman inhaling huge plumes of smoke as she was making the dinner and actually finding out, and you know the stats better than me, just how toxic that air is. I mean, it is extraordinary because we... In the global north, when people talk about pollution, we immediately have an image of a high street um, choked with cars belching out fumes or Blake's um, satanic mills, you know, factories um, that are unhealthy conditions. So we're thinking about public space. But in fact, the majority of pollution, particularly in the global south, is indoor pollution. And exactly as you say, Regini, women cooking over stoves, uh, based on firewood that they've had to travel far to collect. And of course, because of the climate crisis and um, climate-induced drought, they're having to travel further to collect that wood. And they're cooking on these open stoves in often very small spaces that, of course, aren't properly ventilated. And they are in inhaling these fumes day in, day out. And of course, they're going to be liable to respiratory infections, to uh, cancers, uh, to all kinds of, of health ill effects from that. So they are kind of really victimized every which way. And when we talk about vulnerable communities, the important point to mention here is what the climate researcher Irene Dunkelman has said, which is they're not intrinsically vulnerable. Um, women aren't intrinsically vulnerable. They are made vulnerable by the circumstances of their lives. And um, the struggle for daily life is so enormous for these women that, of course, there's no spare energy to participate at higher levels in discussions about the climate. They are literally living the climate crisis every single day. And it's interesting that it's only in the last um, few years with the youth climate strikes and the last report in 2018 from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that really the global north has woken up to the climate crisis. When um, Greta Thunberg said, uh, our house is on fire, a lot of young climate uh, activists from the global south said, our house has been on fire for a very long time, only you never noticed it. So you've discussed there, Anne, some of the ways that women are disproportionately impacted by climate change, particularly, as you say, in the global south. But the second point that you made in your opening was that women have actually done less to cause this situation in the first place. Yes. I mean, I, I'm 
um, I'm a little hesitant to uh, step into this, uh, onto this minefield for, for one reason and one reason alone. And that is so much stress is put on consumption, particularly women's consumption. Um, and, um, I did an event in London recently. And there was a very interesting Palestinian woman there. And she said to me afterwards, she said, you know, I almost didn't come to this event because when I saw the title of your book, I thought it was all going to be about recycling and how, you know, someone wagging their finger saying you must recycle. And this is because, um, and this is perhaps something we can go on to discuss, the pressure put on women, on individual women, to resolve the, the climate crisis. But in terms of consumption, we know from, you know, quite a number of studies, um, by now that consumption is and, and carbon emissions are gendered. There was a recent Swedish study, but it just added to previous studies that show, for example, that, um, women consume less meat than men. Women own and drive fewer cars and motorized vehicles than men. Now, I have to qualify this because um, not all of these are matters of choice. If you have a job that, uh, and public transport has been cut, which we know certainly in the UK is the case, but is the case in many parts of the world. Um, you may have no other option but to drive to work, much as you would like, you would prefer another means of getting there. So we should not make the mistake of thinking this is all down to individual choice and individual bad behavior. But there is no doubt that some of it is to do with choices, even those may be culturally shaped. So, for example, there's very interesting research that shows that men, and again, I have to qualify it by saying not all men, but men who adhere to, who cleave to a very traditional view of masculinity, um, they fear being sort of polluted by anything that seems green because it's become so associated with women and femininity. And so this one study found that for men, uh, for some men, even taking a bag with them, like a cotton bag to go shopping, mm -hmm. um, felt, um, demasculizing in, in, in some way. Wow, and and there was even a suggestion that, mm. um, veggie burgers or vegetarian patties should have artificial grill marks attached so they would make it more, look more like <laughs> meat to a, attract men. Um, this is. Well, it's interesting because I'm actually, I'm actually vegetarian. I do notice that more of my male friends prefer the new style of burgers that kind of bleed beetroot as if it's blood and kind of look more like a, a burger. But that's just anecdotal, of course. Um, I thought what was interesting in what you've just said there, Anne, especially, you know, from the country that I'm speaking to, is that in the global south, there is a desire to have some of the things that people in the West have already had. I've had conversations with people saying, you know, we do want two cars. We do want to be able to drive. All the things that you discussed there contribute to carbon emissions. And I'm just remembering a conversation I had with a woman called Jamuna. She was in uh, the coal belt in Orissa, in the eastern part of the country. And she said she doesn't have electricity. She lives in a, a makeshift slum, but she wants electricity. And so I think what I wanted to ask you was, I mean, how does this all feed in to 
you know, there's a balance. There's women who want to have electricity. They want to be able to go to work. They want to do things which are potentially very polluting. But at the same time, you've got leaders gathering at COP saying, we don't want you to do that. This is a, a, a fantastic question, Regini, and a really, really important one. Because from the perspective of those women, what it looks like, and this is a very accurate perspective, is the global north has polluted their way to a great deal of wealth and, you know, this country, the UK that I'm speaking from, you know, keeps pleading poverty. It's one of the, I think, six rich, it's the sixth richest country in the world. We have polluted our way to luxury, totally unequally distributed, I should say, because there are, there's a huge gap, um, a huge inequality between those at the top and those at the bottom. But nevertheless, as a whole, the country is very rich. And, then turns round and says to people in the global south, you mustn't do this, you mustn't do that because it causes um, uh, global em uh, carbon emissions. And they are quite right to be angry. Now, many years ago, uh, a climate activist called Aubrey Mayer um, developed a, a strategy he called contract and converge. And the idea behind this was that the rich nations who polluted so much need to drastically convert a uh, uh, contract their carbon economies in order that the poorer countries of the world can increase theirs because they are entitled to they need to improve their standard of living and of course it needs to be as green as possible but you know what we are talking about fundamentally here is the results of colonialism and the results of um, the global north extracting and continuing to extract uh, natural resources from the global south and impoverishing them. I mean, there is nothing natural about the state of affairs we've got in the world today. You know, th there's a tendency to depict them as some sort of elemental force, you know, bad luck you in the global south who happen to be in these drought ridden, flood-liable countries. We'll try and help you because we're um, benevolent, you know, charitable people. That is a fundamental misreading of the state of affairs in the world. The, the poverty that you see in the global south is the result of what the global north has done. And there's a wonderful commentator who wrote about that there was a, there was a, a slogan that Oxfam had, make poverty history. Mm. Or maybe it wasn't Oxfam, but one of the charities. And, um, she turned it round and she said, history makes poverty. That's so interesting. And I thought that was spot on. So those women that you are talking to are absolutely entitled. And the idea that there should be you know, we're all in it together and there should be one policy of, you know, zero emissions by 2030 is absolutely untenable. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, 
financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. That is we going have to, to be, reduce our emissions. But that is going to be you know, part of the main focus of COP. I mean, you talk about this inequality. I mean, I'm just thinking about something I read uh, not too long ago from the Prime Minister of Bangladesh, Sheikh Hasina, one of the women leaders, female leaders, I should say, who will be at COP, and she chairs the Vulnerable Countries uh, Committee. And Bangladesh, of course, as you know, a country that has really seen firsthand the impact of climate change. So many people, I think a 30% of the country living in low-lying areas, estimates that something like 11% the country could be underwater in the next 20 to 30 years. Um, but they, the, the fact is that at COP26, every nation is being asked to meet certain targets. What is the solution? I mean, you did write in your book a lot about a Green New Deal. Is that one of the solutions forward for women, particularly? Well, I think the, what's very important is to have a global perspective. There are a multiplicity of Green New Deals. I mean, everybody around the world seems to have latched on to this idea, you know, taking Roosevelt's New Deal and repurposing it with a green aspect. Um, and um, But some of them, they simply export the problems elsewhere. We know, for example, that, you know, this country goes around boasting, the UK goes around boasting at how fast it's reduced carbon emissions. But we know that it's just shoved them to other countries. It just reminds me of an an anecdote that I had a conversation with a a gentleman in Mumbai who runs a shoe factory and he does pollute a lot. This was, you know, a decade ago when I met him. And he said, the thing is that I export my shoes to the UK. Yeah, well, so that's, that is exactly what I was going to say. So we have, for example, you know, comp- you buy a new computer, a new mobile, you discard it. Oh, no, you recycle it. So you feel very virtuous. What happens to it? It ends up in the global south. Um, and, you know, there, there's a very interesting group called the Basel um, Action Network, and they put GPS, uh, GPSs 
into a, a number of electrical goods that were sent for recycling and they tracked them. It's like reading a, a thriller to see what happened to mm. them. And a lot of them, of course, are just abandoned or burnt in the global south. And g- goodness knows what chemicals are emitted and toxifying the air there. And we feel virtuous because we don't see mm. the end result. Um, but by, by the other side of it is, you know, whenever you'd have a discussion about this, people always invariably chip in and say, what about China? You know, China's one of the main polluters. And you have to say, where are those plastic goods made in China ending up? Because if I look around my household, I'm afraid to say a lot of them are here. But do they count as our global, our carbon emissions? No, they're, they're China's. So this idea that, um, you know, we have been decarbonizing very fast in the UK really doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And when you see what's, ke- what's emitted from that, you know, aviation emissions and all the rest of it, you know, it's an, it's an accounting sleight of hand. So, you know, this idea that we all have to do this, we've all got to play our part, you know, is, a, I call this the climate we, and it's a really mystifying and, and deliberately misleading term. And I think we, we have got evidence at the moment of the steps that the major polluters and the extractive industries will go to emit along with their carbon emissions, um, and the greenhouse gases to emit misinformation. I mean, Congress in the US has got hearings at the moment in which, you know, Exxon and the other leading polluters uh, are having to account for their actions because there was an investigation that showed they know how much they've been emitting. They know they're to blame. And it's, it's misinformation. And, um, the one that particularly interests me is in 2004, there was this whole thing suddenly arrived about your carbon footprint. Calculate your carbon footprint. And I know lots of people who were doing that and saying, Oh my goodness, I'm polluting so much. And you know, the whole idea of the individual carbon footprint, an American researcher, Mark Kaufman, discovered this, was a campaign, an advertising campaign, dreamt up by Ogilvy and Mather, a major advertising company, who were employed by British Petroleum to refocus attention on individuals' carbon emissions and away from BP's carbon emissions. And this is the problem in this whole debate. It's something I I call in my book, Blame the Dame. You know, let's refocus attention so we can blame individual women and individual women who are tearing their hair out thinking, how can I pollute less? Um, And am I consuming too much of this, that and the other? And those products are not produced by us. They're Mm -hmm. produced by the fossil fuel industries that are trying to shirk their responsibility. I'm sure the companies that you mentioned there, just so that we can, um, you know, mention this too, would say that they are being transparent. And obviously, we haven't been able to to get them on this podcast to get their perspective on this. But what I wanted to sort of dig into a little bit more is that there are people who will say to everything that you've just said there, Anne, yes, we get it. We know that the point to which we've got to this stage in this climate emergency, um, as it's termed, has been unequal and the global West has been the biggest contributor. But the fact of the matter is it's an emergency and therefore 
everybody needs to do their part. And I hear that a lot because obviously India is in the top 10 of when it comes to global emitters, it's number three. But actually, when you break it down, the per capita carbon emissions are a fraction of the US's and of uh, the UK's. But some people would say, and it's not about per capita, it's about the overall number, because that's what impacts the planet. Well, you know, there's a lot of, of, of truth in that argument. But I mean, there was an interesting study done by someone in Delhi that showed that the 10% of richest Indians emit less than the 20% poorest of Americans. That's so you, you, you cannot see it in absolute terms. Yeah. You have to see it in relative terms. And you have to start from where people are at at the moment. Now, of course, what is required is a transformation on a scale so enormous that it's very hard to get one's head around. But I think we can be defeated in our imagination by the scale of the transformation required. But we have to remember that these transformations happen at many different levels. And I chaired an event in London recently that was totally fascinating. The Women's Budget Group, um, a, a marvellous uh, group of feminist economists, um, had organised this event. And it uh, was about community initiatives in the UK to tackle the climate crisis. And it really showed how really in your own location, you can start to make changes, not individual changes, because I can't tell you how much of my life I have lost trying to avoid buying a, a polyester dress, for example. You know, hours of my life that I will never get back. Um, that isn't the way to do it. But some of these initiatives are about taking local community wealth building organizations, and that can be a university, a hospital, looking at where their food comes from. And often it comes from large polluting companies that have a base, um, financial base in the Cayman Islands, so they don't even pay any tax. Um, and they are producing, you know, industrial food, which is totally unhealthy, has high emissions, and is, is producing private profits and repurposing those food procurement decisions to local organic food. Now, this is thing, something that is happening all over the UK in local communities and is producing healthier, tastier food and challenging the existing economic order at the same time. So, if you, I mean, isn't you know, that isn't that the point? Just to, just to cut in there. I mean, uh, some people listening to this might say, "Well, if you have privilege, if you have money, it's easier to make those decisions." Uh, whether you're in the UK, you're sitting here in Delhi. If you don't have those choices, then you're just going to do what you can do okay. to keep staying I, alive. Well, that that's totally right. And this was a comment. Um, made when there was the Gilets Jaunes protests in France against the raising of um, fuel duty on cars. And some of the protesters said to Emmanuel Macron, the French president, they said, you are thinking about the end of the planet. We're thinking about the end of the week. So I totally get that. Mm. But let me give you an example from India, uh, Regini, um, from Gujarat, where they suffer both um, flooding in some seasons and then drought in other seasons. And 
they have designed, um, a group of people have designed something called the Bunguru, which is a water management system that stores water when there are floods and then it's available for the drought because people were not connecting these two. So it's a technological system, but a very easily used one. And they trained a group of Dalit women, the lowest caste, the poorest women, the women who had the least social and economic power mm-hmm. to, um, to install and manage these water systems. And these women have, through this system, have first of all brought back a lot of land um, into agriculture, land that would not have been, you wouldn't have been able to grow food on otherwise. And their social status has risen enormously as a result. And also because women are hugely involved in agriculture around the world, but particularly in India, but in India own only 4% of the land. As a result of their involvement in the Bunguru, these women were given water irrigation rights and then land, and their social status has risen enormously. So through that project, because it's not just a technological fix, it's also designed to challenge gender inequality. You have changed those women's, not just their social status, but also their political and economic status. Now people are coming to them for advice and you've done something for the environment. And this is the kind of project multiplied at scale that we are seeing that has enormous potential around the world. That is a positive side to all of this. I mean, you've just made me uh, think about uh, a time I was in a village in North India. We talked about the heavily polluting cook stoves, but uh, it was a company, it was a young female entrepreneur who was taking a new kind of cook stove out to villages in India. It basically also generated enough electricity that the villagers could plug in their mobile phone and charge it up. And so there was a kind of a benefit to using this green cook stove in that they were able to charge their phones. But I think what this sort of takes us on to is the third point that you made at the beginning, which is exclusion. So it's it's all very well talking about these projects. It's all very well talking about the role that women need to play. But from what you've written in your book, the fact is, is that women are often not sitting at the table making these decisions, are they, when it comes to climate change? They're, they're not. And, 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 you know, what is generally understood now, I think, are being accepted increasingly, is that... Um, the climate crisis is a multiplier. So it multiplies inequality. It multiplies the ill effects we have from the social systems we've got. So we know that in most cultures, women, you know, don't have equal power, equal political power. Now, very interesting research from a number of different studies now has shown that where women have higher political status, where they are more involved in government in negotiations, those countries are more likely to ratify good environmental treaties. So this is a very interesting phenomenon. Why is it? Uh, Of course, 
the, I, as you would imagine, I reject the idea this is because women are in some sense earth mothers and have some intrinsic innate connection with, with the land. Um, I, I, I think that's a, a, a bit of bunkum, I have to say. Um, the, the reality is that when climate induced disaster strikes, who is it that has to pick up the pieces and rebuild the home and the whole infrastructure of the home and daily domestic life? It's women. So women have, uh, we know this from multiple studies, women have a much keener grasp of the risks from the climate crisis than men. And if you look at who the climate deniers are, on the whole, they're rich, white, older men. Um, uh, now, not all older white men are in that category. I have to say, I live with one and he is very, very far from being a climate denier. But um, on the whole, that is who the deniers are. So when you get women in negotiations, they are more likely to go the way of making good climate decisions. And we see in countries like um, Finland and Denmark that have female uh, prime ministers, um, they immediately are starting to tackle uh, through the legislative process what can be done for the climate crisis. So it is absolutely essential to have women at the top table. And what do we see? At the COPs, the involvement of women has actually decreased um, over In the last sense? few years. In what way? There are fewer women. So the UNFCC, the U United Nations Framework Climate Change Convention, has uh, multiple committees. Honestly, it's acronym hell. You go into there. They're all abbreviations, but there are many, many committees. And on almost every one, there are only about a third or a fifth of female members. If you look at the negotiating teams for COP, mm. the UK originally had not a single woman in the senior management uh, negotiating team. Then there were protests and there was a, a there's a pressure group that um, started up called hashtag she changes climate. They put pressure and then a few were added. But at the at the moment the 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 British COP negotiating team, there are only 16% of them are women. And, you know, this is... It sort of astounds me, actually, just, you know, just more generally, that people don't notice that until other people do. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, it's yeah. women who notice that. It's people of colour who notice when they're not being represented, isn't well, it? Exactly. And, you know, when we say 16% women, you can be sure that majority of them are white women. And then when you start to add in, because this is an intersectional debate here, when you see to add in, for example... um People and women with disabilities. I mean, I'm, I feel very strongly about disability. I've been writing about it for 30 years and the marginalization of people with disabilities from this debate where they should be foremost because they have all kinds of experience of, you know, what to do in a crisis, uh, how to get out and the difficulties of doing so if they have physical mobility problems, um, you know, or LGBTQ people who are very often in certain cultures blamed for the climate crisis and find themselves in, in emergency shelters where they are extremely vulnerable to homophobic attacks. So all these groups need to be centre stage. And at the moment, they are not. So 
this is where we need to expend a lot of our energies. Not me trying to wonder how I can avoid buying a polyester dress, but, but saying, where are the women? Where are the women of color? Where are the people with disabilities and the women with disabilities? We need to hear their voices. And, you know, it, when those voices are prominent, the good decisions the follow changes. it totally. Um, I just wanted to, before we wrap up, ask you about your involvement in COP. You're attending this year. What are you hoping to get out of your attendance? What's the point? Some people ask me, what's the point of these summits? A load of people flying from all over the world. Um, I know you'll be taking a train. Um, They'll all be getting together. They're far removed from all the many people we've talked about in Africa and India who are impacted by it. So, I mean, what do you think the point of it is and why are you going? Well, I, I mean, again, a, a good question. And I, I fear that it's been fetishized because media love events rather than processes. And this is just one event. And we know that, you know, a, a rabbit, a, a climate rabbit is not going to be pulled out of a hat. That is very, very un, un, unlikely. I'm going because I'm chairing. I'm really excited. I'm chairing an event co-organized by the Women's Budget Group and the Women's Environmental Network to discuss and launch the idea of a feminist Green New Deal. And the reason this is important is all this talk about build back better, you know, and, and politicians who love being seen in hard hats and high vis jackets. And they're always focusing on physical infrastructure and, you know, on retrofitting homes and, um, insulating, uh, and on, um, uh, you know, industrial, um, developments and technology, all of which, of course, have a role to play. But what the, uh, feminist Green New Deal does is it places care at the heart of a, a, a green economy. And this is really fascinating. What has care got to do with the climate crisis? Well, in COVID, through the experience of the pandemic, we saw how critical care is and how neglected it is. But the Women's Budget Group did a fascinating piece of research where they showed that if you compared each pound spent on care jobs, you know, whether that's nursing or informal care in the home and paying it properly, um, and a one pound pay uh, invested in physical infrastructure, that pound for care produced almost three times as much work. So it was brilliant for producing employment. And those jobs were 30% less polluting. Oh, that's So what they have argued is we need to put care at the heart of a green economy. Care jobs are green jobs. And if we start from care and build outwards from that, we can produce what um, Kate Rayworth has called donut economics. In other words, there is a space between meeting everybody's fundamental needs all around the world and exceeding what the planet can bear. And in between, there's this ring, it's like a donut. There's a ring where we can meet everyone's needs. The, the, the planet has the potential to do so um, in an equitable way while sustaining the planet. And women and care are at the heart of that. And this is the change that we need. And this is the discussion that we're going to be having in launching the, the feminist Green New Deal that I think needs to be the centre of the climate conversation. 
Well, wish you all the best with that. And thanks so much for joining us here on this podcast. It was really interesting to discuss so many of the issues around the climate challenges, which of course are going to dominate the conversation in the next weeks. Uh, Just to remind our listeners, Anne's book is called How Women Can Save the Planet. It's available from Hearst Publishers. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I'm Regini Vaidyanathan. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm Bea Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.